You know, one of the main themes of today's study is jealousy. But jealousy doesn't arise unless there's conflict somewhere. Somebody's having a conflict with another person when jealousy arises. And so we're going to be talking about that conflict, but I want you to think today through the books, through the chapters that we've already looked at in the book of Daniel. We haven't talked about this a whole lot. But Daniel is a stranger in a foreign land, and we often tend to think that he's got it so good, he's in the court, and he's being well taken care of by the kings around him. But his life is in the hands of those kings, and one small move could irritate any one of them to call it quits as far as Daniel is concerned, except for God. I want you to start with me in your minds right now, and then we'll talk about it really briefly. What conflicts do you see chapter by chapter that are, are within those chapters that impact Daniel's life? Okay, you're gonna have to think a minute. Go back to chapter one if you have to look in your Bibles. What's the very first conflict that comes up in chapter one of Daniel? The food issue. The food issue. They're strangers in a foreign land. And they have, Daniel and his friends, have said in their hearts that they're going to stand for the Lord. They've resolved it. But the conflict comes up with what do we do? Here's the food issue. At a moment's notice, had he chosen to, Nebuchadnezzar could have taken their lives for what they were asking for. But he did not. And so God intervened in what could have been a disaster. What I want you to see as we go through these chapters now is how God has moved. So chapter two, what's the conflict? Is that the dream that no one could have What? Is that the dream that no one could have That's the dream. What's the conflict? Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Interpreting. Interpreting the dream. And his, his magicians and astrologers could not. Daniel prayed that the Lord would give him an interpretation of that dream, of the dream that they didn't even know. And God gave him not only the interpretation, he gave him the dream so that he would know the interpretation. God intervenes in conflict. We live in conflict. And that's what I want you to think about. Chapter three, what else happens? Right. There's Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden image. And what does he ask the people to do? Bow down and worship him. Conflict for Christians. See what I'm getting at? Conflict. And again, God intervenes. The three men have resolved to follow the Lord, and they do not bow down. What happens to them? They go through the fiery furnace, but God again intervenes, and they come out victorious. Okay? Keep going, chapter 4. What was that for? That was 3, chapter 4. The dream about the tree, the dream about the tree, what's the conflict? He has to give advice Another to the king. Interpretation. An interpretation. It's kind of 
telling the truth when that's not uh, telling unpleasant truth to this mighty king. Now you have to think about these kings. They're the, they're not these nice gentle guys. <laughs> they, they're, they're powerful and they live within their power and they love their power and they love their might. We, we tend to forget all of that because when you watch the movies, you have these beautiful court scenes and you look at that, uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> and everything looks absolutely perfect. But you see at a moment's notice, they have trigger minds that if you do not obey, you're done. And here's Daniel once again interpreting a dream that tells the king, listen, you know, you better shape up because if you don't shape up, God's going to take care of you. Yes, Sandy. It's the third time that the other magician from that couldn't interpret and right. Daniel did. So there's that underlying current. All this time, what we're going to see and what we're going to see in today's lesson really is building underneath the whole time because God is protecting Daniel and the rest of the people don't like it. That's what we're going to see in chapter six. All right, so last week's lesson, lesson five. Defiling the temple goblets. What? Defiling the temple goblets. Defiling the temple goblets, and before that, the writing on the wall, or after that it is, after that happens, the writing on the wall, and the message to Belshazzar, another king. Again, pictured as a beneficent king and kind and good to Daniel and good to all these people that he's got gathered into his house. But he again was like Nebuchadnezzar, a mighty conqueror and proud. And so here's Daniel, and what does Daniel do? You have a conflict. Here's, here's Belshazzar, here's Daniel. The conflict between them is what? What does Daniel tell him? If you don't change your ways, if you don't mend your ways, you're going to be punished for it. And he is. And God works again. And Daniel, again, is victorious over conflict. Now, when Michelle and I started this, we were both astonished with Daniel's calm demeanor. He doesn't ever explode. He doesn't ever run around like a chicken with his head cut off, thinking, what am I going to do? Which I sometimes do. <laughs> He's calm in the midst of the most horrendous storms in his life. And we think these aren't storms the things we've just talked about. But they continue to build throughout all of this story. And when we get to lesson six, we have conflict in the court. And we also have another king. Okay, we're going to be looking at chapter six today. Before we do, I want you to take a look at this map that's on the tables. In chapter 6, and at the end of chapter 5, um, in chapter 5, verse 30, it reads, That very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Now, this is the kingdom. I want you to see how large it is. That's why I printed it. 
This man was in charge of a kingdom made up of land that stretched beyond India, from the border of India and up, and around what is uh, like Czechoslovakia and some of the countries we know around Russia, and then all of the way up around the Black Sea, and then covers Babylon, sneaks down into Egypt, and when Darius takes the throne, he is, as, as you, if you look at the little Medo-Persian kings down here, he's actually an army general that's, that's appointed by Cyrus to rule over this area, rule over Babylon and the countries around him. Well, Cyrus is down here in Egypt, finishing up whatever wars he's got going on, okay? So this is a time of conflict for the world, po world powers, but we have this new king, and he's called the king, King Darius, um, who's taking power in the court <clears throat> and is setting things up, and that's how this particular story opens up. And he becomes, um, in a sense, again, part of the, the conflict that's happening here. So I'm going to start by reading chapter 6, and we'll go through um, these verses in this story. It's an interesting story. Now, our lesson is about jealousy. Before we do that, I want to talk about what is jealousy? How would you define it? Wanting what someone else has. Wanting what someone else has. Anything else about it? Yes. I think that's more like envy when you want envy. Yeah. Yep. Jealousy is like I'm going to maintain this and nobody's going to take it away. Jealousy is a, almost a sickness. Where yes, what they want, they must get. They have such a yearning for it. And the people who are who they see as above them become objects of hatred and scorn. And we see them in the story trying to tear Daniel down. Jealousy does that. They want to destroy what is better than them so that they can rise in power. Now, let's read for a, a bit and then we'll talk about this. I want you to see here... <clears throat> that God works within Daniel through all of this to help us, to help us to know how we can handle conflict. It's not just a lesson for him, it's a lesson for us. So it pleased Darius in verse one to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional quality that the king planned to set him over the whole region. And here's where the problem begins. We have a new king in a massive territory trying to set up and organize his kingdom. Now, Babylon has fallen to the Medes and the Persians. It's still there as a big, beautiful city. But this king, like every new leader, wants to come in and put his own people into position. 
and they put he puts um, three administrators and 120 satraps under them. One of the administrators was Daniel, and he so pleased the king that the king was going to put him over all of them. And issues arise, and they begin to go after them, after Daniel. And the court is a perfect setting for conflict. Because you have a new king, you have new people, new possibilities, and nobody knows what's what, but they all have their own desires. And that's what this is about. These guys want a place that Daniel now occupies. So, setting up the kingdom is Darius's first order of business, and his <coughs> officials that he's appointed are upset. And there's conflict in the workplace. Now, we're gonna to talk today about the areas of conflict that we find here, and there's three areas in, the, in this chapter that they go after because they decide, let's read um, verse four and verse five. <clears throat> when the king planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom, at this, verse four, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. So we have all these guys trying to get rid of Daniel. Conflict in the court. And we're going to look at these things that they go after one by one, but the first thing they choose to work against is his personal attributes. Now, if you become jealous of someone you become oftentimes jealous of position and of their attributes, and they're looking for something to find that they don't like about Daniel or something that he has done wrong. And we're gonna talk about that. So first of all, his attack against his personal attributes, then they go after his religion, and then they go after his ethnicity. They are mean. They're out to get him. So, we're going to take a look, first of all, at his attack, their attacks upon his personal attributes as a worker. I'm going to read verse 5 again here, and then we'll talk about this. So they're, they're trying to find corruption in him. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So I want you to think for a while about the attack upon his personal attributes as a worker. If you were going to go after someone's personal attributes and you worked with this person and you wanted his position, what kind of things would you look for specifically? What would create conflict even in your world? in your job, in your home, even in the church, if you were going after someone's personal attributes and you wanted to get him? Integrity. His integrity. Is he honest? What else? Loyalty. His loyalty to the king, yes. I want you to think of it this way as a pairing. He's. He's the old guy. So you have age versus youth. Does that ever happen in the workplace? Does it ever happen in the church? 
What kind of problems does age and youth have? I look at things differently. Look at things differently. Can't use the phone. <laughs> Can't use the computer. All kinds of things in our lives. Age versus youth, one conflict. Here's Daniel, he's 80 years old almost when this happens. They're new, new to the area, trying to make a name for themselves. Very much like what we experience. All right, the second one I can see. Experience versus the new hires, and the new hires had everything to prove, and Daniel has nothing to prove. They're vying for his post to the extent that they will work to destroy him. Does that ever happen in the workplace? Experience versus youth, new guy. You ever been the new guy? Ever felt like you've got struggles to prove yourself? They did. How about good workers, a good worker versus less productive workers? What about Daniel? Best they had, right? Mm -hmm. These new guys wanted the job. The Bible tells us that, and they wanted it badly. And the conquered lands, that's why I wanted you to see the map, needed leadership. Daniel had proven leadership, even proven administrative ability over all of this. But these guys wanted their own voice and their own way as new hires to prove themselves to the king. They're looking for position, possession, more than anything else. We have, again, we have trustworthy or loyalty versus non-loyalty. That's another point of conflict. Daniel was loyal. These guys are not necessarily loyal, not even to Cyrus, because they're looking out for themselves. And I want to tell you why. If you look at other scriptures, it points out that when these lands were conquered, these lands didn't just sit there, they were money makers for the kingdom. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had this organized so much that there were cities devoted to storage of food for the kingdom. There were portions of land set aside for crops, for harvesting. There were even places built for, for keeping the chariots and the horses. And there were people put over all of those departments. There were taxes to be paid, revenuers. <laughs> so there was money to be made if you were a crook. If you weren't loyal to the king, you could skim. You could take what was not yours. The kingdom is huge. And that king could not have possibly have known what was going on in that corner or that corner unless his people were loyal to him. So there's conflict in the court because Daniel stands for everything good that the king wanted. Conflict in the court. So we find out from scripture that they could find nothing about Daniel that wasn't trustworthy. 
Now, why do you suppose that drove them crazy? I would say that would be a really good thing. And they, they weren't. They weren't. Does all of this sound a little familiar? <laughs> Seriously. They would have loved it if they could corrupt him. But he was not corruptible. <clears throat> he was honorable. And that's what God asks us to be in the workplace, in our churches, in our communities. So they can't find anything to charge us with. It's a little convicting, isn't it? Unfortunately, you hear awful things about Christians from the world around us. And what God calls us to is to be <clears throat> incorruptible, like Daniel. So that's the first thing. They couldn't find anything to attack upon his personal attributes. He was so yielded to the Lord. And this is what God wants us to be in the foreign world that we live in. Okay? In the world that we live in, which is to be foreign to us, because we're believers in Christ. All right, the next thing they do then is they have to attack his religious beliefs. So <clears throat> they actually have to create a conflict because they can't find anything wrong there either. And the conflict is horrible when you think about it. <laughs> Let's read in scripture, <clears throat> starting in verse six. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O oh, King Darius, well, listen to their sweet lips, O oh, King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any man or God during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. What are they trying to do to the king? Appeal to his ego. Appeal to his already inflated ego. <laughs> Oh, loyal king. Oh, good king. It's called kissing. <laughs> now, oh king, issue the decree and put it in writing so it can't be altered. They had a written code of laws. This was one of them, that they, the law could not be altered. You know why it couldn't be altered? Because the king was thought of as a god, and a god could not alter give a decree that was wrong. That's where that came from. So we write a, a rule saying that because you're a God, that can't be altered. And so issue the decree, put it in writing so it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing without thinking. He just did it. Now, this is the news gets put around Daniel. So what they're really testing him for is, tell me, 
what are they testing him for here? What are the, the administrators and satraps and all of the rulers under him, what are they looking for here to prove to the king? What's the question that Daniel has to prove to them? That he is loyal to them. <laughs> that he is loyal to the king. But he's loyal to God. But he's loyal to God. They knew he would fail because they knew how faithful he was. They knew how faithful he was. And the challenge was, what would he do? This was their way of getting rid of him. It's their way of getting rid of him. But as we know, it didn't work. But they're trying to close the trap. So let's read verse 10. When Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they ran to the king. Oh boy, now we got him. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish? They're checking up. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you would be thrown into the lion's den? And they're crossing their fingers that the king actually published that and signed his name to it. And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, and it cannot be repealed. Oh, so now they can tattle. All right. Then they said to the king, there's one of the exiles who continues to pray, and it's Daniel. So let's stop there, first of all, before we go on to the attack on his ethnicity. Why did Daniel not just close the windows and pray in secret? Or why did he do it at all? Did he break the law? Man's law. He broke man's law. He just was continuing to do what he'd been doing. Mm -hmm. And wasn't he praying towards the temple? Like the window was open and he was praying towards... Jerusalem. He was praying toward Jerusalem in accordance with... What we, with what King Solomon had decreed in the book of 1 Kings and prayed to God that he would um, direct the people's hearts toward the holy city, direct the people's hearts toward God. Uh, he was not, Daniel was not in any way standing against the king in his prayers, but he was continuing to worship his God. So um, they're looking for a technicality. And Daniel served a higher God. In the book of Acts, when there was uh, when the church was just beginning, the people were put into jail for praying, and they, they just continued to pray and to praise the Lord and to continue to go out and evangelize. And they, in the book of Acts, they just write out, say, it is, it is better for us to serve God than to serve men. The law of God is higher than any man's law. And Daniel just continued to do what he had always done. And really what happens here is that it, it then comes up to the, does the king then see it as a law that's been broken? The people believe it has, the satraps and the administrators think they've got him. Okay, so let's just keep reading. Because the next thing they do then is they try to attack his ethnicity and they drag that into it. And I'll tell you why. 
Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue Daniel. He made his decision in his mind. However, they're going to hold him to the law. And he made every effort until sundown to rescue him. And then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, remember the law, the, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict can be changed. Now let's just stop there one minute. Why would they bring in the fact that he is one of the exiles from Judah? What's the importance of that? Because they're nasty. And they have, they have a lot more on their minds than just getting rid of Daniel. When you draw the rest of the Jews into that, you put them all into that same place where Daniel is. They are God's people. They are people of God who are living in a foreign land. They are, they are captives there. And their God is dealing with them there. But their God is still their God. Now, they're exiles there. They're slaves and servants. Daniel's risen to some power, but many of them have not. Are they wanted in the nations of the Medes and Persians? Were they wanted in Babylon? No, they're prisoners. Seriously, they're people who are brought there to serve the country around them. And the kings have given them some authority to, to do things, but God himself told them, when you get into these lands, what were they to do? They were to marry, have children, teach their children to pray, teach their children about God, seek his face. So when they bring the exiles into the picture, they're trying to say, look at if Daniel's doing this, what do you think the rest of them are thinking? What do you think the rest of them might do? Do you think they are going to follow you? That's really what they're trying to do, to stir up insurrection among those people, among the Jews. They weren't loved. Okay? They were exiles. And so Daniel then becomes, in effect, the face of them all. And that's okay with him. But the effect was intended to imply that they were all like Daniel, disloyal to the king. So let's keep going here. Verse 16, we know what happens. The king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Now Darius has a lot to say about the king and more so at the end. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den and then he came near the den and called to Daniel. 
in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, O king, live forever. Now think about that for a moment. He's down in this dungeon. And in reading about it, that's what it was. It was a, a cave, literally, in a hill or on a mountainside where a, a gate had been built that rose and kept the, the lions on one side until they dropped some food down onto the other side and they pulled up the gate and then cleared out one side and brought the, the lions into the side where they could have good food and here's Daniel. That's their meal. And so Daniel answered, O king, live forever. God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done anything wrong before you. Just imagine that. I've not done anything wrong before you, O king. I've not ever said anything against your name. But I have worshipped my God as I've been loyal to you. Then the king was overjoyed, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den, and when he was lifted out of the den, there was no wound found on him, just like with the men that came forth out of the fiery furnace. No smoke was upon them, no burns. And so here's Daniel once again, proving the power of God over the most horrible type of punishment that we can imagine. So, Here's the rest of it. At the king's command, oh, let me read. <clears throat> yeah, 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Do you know why it was? They would seek revenge. Not just that the king was seeking revenge, but that, again, to keep the family from growing and spreading the types of hatred that the father had. In other words, get rid of them all. Just like, actually, just what the, what the satraps and the administrators were trying to do to Daniel and the Jews, let's get rid of all the Jews, punish them all, because they're all found in him, okay? So here the family goes. The family follows the leader. So along with their wives and children, and before they reached the floor of the den, the lions had overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. It's a horrible ending to think about, but it's God's way of dealing with sin. And it's part of it is to show us how much he, he hates sin. He, he hates sin. He punishes sin. He is a God of judgment as well as a God of righteousness. And that's hard for us to think of sometimes. I think he was cruel. He was not ever cruel. God is not ever behaving cruelness. So then, um, at the end of the chapter, King Darius wrote to all of the people, the nations, and men of every language throughout the land. And he says, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence 
the God of Daniel. I don't know how effective this is. Um, it's almost like an enforced worship. So, but this is where his heart lies. For he is, and what he says about God is powerful. He is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves, and he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. And he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, <clears throat> in the midst of conflict, in every case that we talked about, Daniel has come through. And we don't have any issues where we see him complaining or showing any effects of being charged with the things that he's charged with. But I want you to think about what it is in Daniel that keeps him as he is, as we see him in these stories, that keeps him so that he doesn't respond in kind to the people around him. What is it? What is Daniel's secret for peace in the midst of conflict? <clears throat> Prayer. Prayer. What? Trusting God. Trusting in God. Believing. Believing. Lynn. And seeing, <clears throat> seeing the origin of the conflict, not necessarily with the person, but with the enemy that's influencing. He, he sees the origin of the conflict, not merely the people that are getting at him, because behind all of these things is the power of Satan. Now, when we talk about jealousy, that very sin itself has its origin in Satan, in the enemy. What was Satan jealous of? Of God. Of the power and might of God. And so, and when we go on and study uh, Daniel, you'll see again how there are, there's the sphere of God there's that sphere of the heavenly beings, good and evil. And that the enemies of God have power on earth. And Satan himself is called the god of this age, the prince and the power of the air. And he is working in the hearts of men, just as he does today, to draw them to himself and away from God. And every one of these conflicts in the book of Daniel is set up that way. The power behind the throne, the power in the court is all that which is ordered by Satan to destroy all that God has intended, the man of God, Daniel. And so when Daniel looks at these, and this is what we need to learn, it's the same thing we talked about in the book of Ephesians. We wrestle not against what? It's flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, and against spiritual wickedness where? In heavenly high places, in high places. <clears throat> And so what the book of Daniel shows us is that absolute 
ability of Daniel to rise above the power of the enemy and to see instead the power of God over the enemy. So whatever the enemy is, he's not worried. Because why? We sing this song, our God is greater, our God is stronger, our God is greater than any power. And we love it because it's got a lot of rhythm and we like to rock to it. <laughs> but you know what? It's true. Our God is stronger. Our God is greater. There is no power that can stand against him. That was the message that Daniel spoke specifically to Nebuchadnezzar. It's what he spoke last week when he talked to Belshazzar. Why are you using those goblets and those items of worship? God is going to punish you. And here we have the same thing, another powerful and mighty earthly king basically is handled by God. But Daniel's God, the God of heaven, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. There is no power that can overcome him. And God calls us to do what Daniel did, not just to pray, not just to think about it, but to actually get into our hearts this picture of almighty, sovereign God who is for us and not against us. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is greater than any other power. Amen.